Coming up next on The Voice of Alabama Politics, our special guest, Greg Cochran for the League of Municipalities. Also, APR's Chip Brownlee breaks down the COVID data. And the legislature steals the people's money, in my opinion. Billy, Billy, Petty thugs, petty criminals. All this and much, much more coming up next on The V. We tackle the tough issues so you have the hard facts. I'm your host, Bill Britt, and today I'm joined by investigative reporter and columnist for APR, Josh Moon, and my partner, Susan Britt. Hey, how are y'all doing? Hey, Josh. Hey, how are you? How are you? Hey, uh, happy uh, Mother's Day to uh, work, Mom. Yeah. Ah, thank yeah. you. Thank yeah. you, thank you. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> uh, she is one mother. I can tell you that. Uh, you know... <laughs> Y'all need one. She's great. Uh, you know, it, 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 Susan, Governor Kay Ivey came out on Friday and lifted more restrictions mm -hmm. on on people uh, going out, more rest lifted restrictions on restaurants and other things. Kind of give us a rundown of what is now sort of open up. She said, well, as governor, not only does she have a responsibility for our physical health, she also has a responsibility for our economic health. Uh, with you know nearly two nearly 400 people have been lost so far she did reopen the restaurants uh, at 50 percent with six foot distancing bars salons gyms uh, uh, not, but not, but not not bars I'm sorry barbers barbers barbers, barbers. Uh, but then not open yet like Lily teams or concert venues or anything like that um, it appears that they are going to reopen the churches there she's saying that the the numbers are not associated with social distancing anymore. In other words, the 10 or under has been lifted. However, they still are going to enforce the six-foot distancing when it comes to anything like uh, weddings, funerals, worship services, or anything like that. Josh, while I know there's been a clamor to get the state back open, this, to me, is, seems more political than good policy. Yeah, so... Uh, yeah, I think I think you're right. I think it's uh, it's, it's definitely political. Uh, I think she was getting a lot of pressure, and she took a lot of heat uh, from some old friends uh, over the last couple of weeks uh, for not lifting things like Georgia and Tennessee have done. Um, you know, and and I'll say I think there is a there is a point to be made uh, there, a legitimate point to be made, and one to be considered about the economic health of the state. Uh, and because while you know, I think people when when you say that. You, it, it comes out as, well, you're choosing dollars over people. Well, it's not necessarily the case. I mean, in a lot of cases, it's people versus people. You have a lot of families in, uh, who are out there who are really, really struggling badly right now. Uh, I to understand. Try to eat, just to eat. 
Um, you know, and, and I mean, you look at the lines for free food stretching, stretching back for miles in certain places. And I think you come to an understanding that this is affecting people in a very bad way. And so if you're, if you're going to say that, and I mean, if you're going to say that's the reason why we're going to do this and because we feel like our hospitals can handle now, they're better equipped to handle the inevitable spike that's going to come from relaxing these restrictions. Well, okay, say that. But what it was presented as is, is this, well, we're getting better. Y'all have done a great job out there, and it's not been a picnic for everybody. But, I mean, it's just, you know, that's nonsense. It's a false message, and I think it leads to people being less safe. Well, I, I, you know, and, and Susan, my opinion is when Dr. Harris said, well, we can see as many as 2%, 2% increase in COVID-19 cases, which also can, you know, means a lot more dead. Uh, you know, I understand suffering economically. We, we've lost businesses. We have been in the situation where it is just dire straits to get money. Right. And I understand that and I feel for everyone who is going through this, everybody's taking a hit. The thing is, you can replace a business and you can replace an income. You cannot replace a life. And Governor Ivey started out the, the uh, press conference saying, if I wasn't your governor, I wouldn't be here with y'all right now. Again, I think she's making the best of bad decisions. There's no good, there's no good decision here. No, you're right, and, and it's not. And, and, uh, I, I don't want anybody to think that it's that it's easy, and and you can just say to people, well, you need to stay shut down for six months, no, no, and you, can't. you know, and, and that's not it's not a realistic sort of a thing. And, it, and at some point, I, and I'll. I'm also of the belief, uh, which will probably drive a lot of my liberal friends crazy, that the more people who ultimately get this, the better off in the long run that we're going to be. Uh, you know, although you're going to have this, se this segment of society there who are very, very vulnerable to this. Uh, right. And, you know, if you, you've got to figure out the balance there. To, to be able to treat those people, to be able to keep those people from getting this. And we, we've not figured out any sort of a balance. We have nothing. We have, there's no data to go on for this relaxation of restrictions. No, there isn't. And, and look, we're not going to find a perfect balance because it's a, it's a balance of science and politics. And when I say that she made a political decision, that's what politicians do. It doesn't necessarily mean they're bad. That's what they do. They've got two, we've got two minutes, and this is extremely important yes. that we get to. The... Federal government, as part of the CARES Act, sent approximately $1.8 billion right. to the governor of Alabama to pay for the things that are needed from the COVID-19 Stuff we've outbreak. been talking about. Stuff we've been talking about. PPEs, hospitals, poor folks, folks Nursing that lose homes. their jobs, all that. They sent the money to the governor. She tried to make a deal with the legislature, and Josh, all they did was just flat out steal the money. Well, that's what I mean, she's familiar ring to it. Yeah. Yeah, that's what they're known for, stealing the money. And and, and I, I, she is clearly, clearly fed up with them. Uh, I mean, <laughs> referred to them stealing BP money. Uh, and I mean, it just is, oh man, she is. She what, said what, that. They, in fairness. She's 100% she's right about this. Uh, they have no reason to have their grubby little hands on this money. Uh, and yeah. nobody trusts them to spend it properly in any no. way, shape, or form. They were calling well, it our money. It's not their money. It's the And she told them, it's not your money. And I'm cleaning that up a little bit. Uh, it's not your money. It's the people of Alabama's money. Well, Dale Marsh 
Senate President Pro Tem led this charge. He did it before. They took the BP money. Dale Marsh and Mike Hubbard took the BP money. Now they're taking this money. But she, he went to her and said, oh, well, we'll put together this co illegal committee and, and we'll decide who gets the money. And then he said another illegal committee and she said, you can't do it. So she recommended that you have a, 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 an advisory board of the minority leaders and the, the four, budget chairs. four budget chairs. And they went, oh, no, 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 we're not going to work with them. Oh, oh we're not going to have we're that. We're not going to have that. <laughs> we can't have any Democrats or blacks deciding where the money goes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you don't want that. You want the people who know best about what poor people need. You don't want any of those people in there. I mean, That's honestly, right. they're going to spend this worse than BP would have spent the money. I know. We're going to have to leave it right there. You're watching The V, the voice of Alabama politics, and we don't pick your pocket like the legislature does. We'll be right back. Today is a unique day, and it's far bigger than we think, because there are many different kinds of mothers, and all are being honored today. For the mother who's chosen to stay at home while her children are little, may your patience be great and your influence even greater. For the single mom who never planned on doing this alone, may you be consistently strengthened by your Heavenly Father and may you hear His voice singing over you. For women who have no biological children of their own, but who mother younger women as mentors, may you understand your role as a calling from God and as a transformation of their hearts. Today is a unique day, so for all the mothers we mentioned, and even those we didn't, be blessed, be honored, be filled with joy. You are making the world a better place because you're filling it with a love that only a mom can give. What are you doing today, babe? I thought I'd head down to the lake with the guys, do a little fishing. Of course, none of us will be wearing our seat belts. I'll lose control of the truck, wrap it around a tree, and kill us all. Okay. Drive safe, Alabama. A message from your Alabama Department of Transportation. I'm John Merrill. As your Secretary of State, my goal is to ensure that each and every eligible U.S. citizen that's a resident of Alabama is registered to vote and has a photo ID. If you're concerned about going to the polls on July the 14th, we want to encourage you to download an absentee ballot application at alabamavotes.gov or contact your local circuit clerk. Make sure you enclose a copy of your photo ID when you submit your application. We may not see you in person, but through absentee, we'll see you at the polls. Welcome back to The V, the voice of Alabama politics. Our special guest today is Greg Cochran, Deputy Director of the Alabama League of Municipalities. Welcome, Greg. Hey, Greg. Welcome. Thank you, Susan and Bill, for having us on the show today. Great to have you on. I know the League of Municipalities, y'all really are the voice of the cities of the state, large and small towns all across our 67 counties. And 
this has been a trying time for all of our municipalities. Can you tell us and share with our viewers what you're hearing from the municipalities and, and what is really going on out there during these tough, tough financial times? Yes, sir, that's a great question and, and we'll be glad to try to fill you in on that. Our cities are recognized in mid-March as this pandemic started to ramp up across the nation and in our state that it was gonna have a financial impact on their revenue streams. We, as businesses, were asked to close their doors, as restaurants were asked to, to shutter in-house dining. Uh, we right. knew that, that these revenue streams that our cities rely on to provide their essential services to citizens were gonna be impacted. We formed at the league a 10-member task force made up of municipal officials to look at what was happening at the local level and to make recommendations on how we could provide information uh, to the public, to uh, policymakers at the state and federal level. And in that, we developed a, a portal, a revenue portal that was developed in concert with the city of Tuscaloosa, which provided us with a lot of extraordinary help in putting this portal together. And it is going to be able to show us as revenue streams start coming in and realized by cities, just what that financial impact is gonna be. And that was a brilliant idea. I mean, the technology meaning that cities could put in the actual revenue numbers that they were seeing so that you guys could go to the state lawmakers, you could go to Congress and say, hey, these are the real numbers. Am I correct in that? Yes, sir. We felt it was extremely important to be accurate and transparent and putting this portal together, allowing each city to input those numbers from their, their main revenue streams, which are sales and use tax. It's uh, lodgings, rental, motor fuel, and occupational. Those are the revenue streams cities rely on to provide those essential services. And this gives us that accountability and transparency that our congressional leaders, our state policymakers are, are wanting from us. What, what, are, what are the, I mean, I know you're in the initial phases of this because the reporting comes in, uh, there's a lag time, but what are you seeing out there? I mean, what is the overall impact so far? Well, again, as you pointed out, we're just now starting to see the March business activity reflected in those revenue streams. And the COVID uh, pandemic really started affecting March 15th or so. We started seeing a, a reaction to our communities. In that, we're seeing that lodgings taxes have decreased by 50%. Sales and use taxes have decreased by 25%. So you're starting to see, even in motor fuel, as people were not leaving their homes, not traveling for the spring breaks, that you're seeing about a 20 to 25% decrease in motor fuel tax collections. Wow. So Greg, what, what, are the, what is the league going to be able to do to help these cities during the pandemic? That's a great right. question. That's right. And what we're doing with this information is we continue to gather it. It gives us that good data to talk to our policymakers at the state and federal level to, to identify the actual needs that our cities are having. Because it's our opinion that without the foundation of the city being economically healthy, it doesn't matter how much money Congress and the state puts towards the business community because there's not a foundation for them to build upon. As we right. found across our state, the cities that do the best have a great foundation for businesses to, to prosper, for citizens to get out and be live, work, and play in their communities. 
And so making sure that cities have these funds to provide the essential services that allows the business community to be successful and allows for citizens to live, work, and play in the manner in which they want to, that's the recipe for success, in our opinion. There have been at least three stimulus packages come out of the federal government so far. We, we would imagine that there will be another one that's forthcoming. Uh, what does the league really need for Congress to do? Well, we have had over 40 conference calls uh, over the last eight weeks. That's been with the National League of City, the White House, our congressional delegation, uh, with the governor. We serve on the governor's task force, the lieutenant governor's task force. Again, in creating this environment, we have found that getting them accurate information, which is what this portal is going to help us to do, uh, and so we can ask for them to help us with legislation that would put money back into the community foundation to help us resupply this revenue loss that we've suffered across our state and it's impacting our cities differently. Gulf Shores is going to be impacted differently than Troy, Alabama and that's why we, we thought it was important to have this portal put together where they could put their individual cities resources in that to that portal and share that with the elected officials. Your team has stayed on the job. Uh, I know we're in contact with you uh, at least on a weekly basis, it seems like. Y'all stayed on, your, on the job and you put in a lot of hard work. Do you feel like, you know, you're, you're starting to see the kind of positive results or at least the kind of information that you need that we can have Alabama's future be brighter and more hopeful than it is right at the moment? Yes, sir, I do. As we have participated in the governor's task force, uh, she's very intentional about reopening the economy based on good health data. And I think that's the important thing as we move to reopen our economy, that we do it in a very thoughtful way, a very strategic way, so that we don't have a surge appear that would uh, scare consumer confidence. In our calls with the congressional delegation, they have been very receptive in understanding the needs of our municipalities and our municipal leaders, I have to give them credit. They've been great in communicating with both the state officials and the federal officials on these needs and how they can all work together to put our economy back to where it was before this pandemic occurred. Well, we wanna thank you for all the hard work that y'all are doing there, you and your staff. And we wish the very best to all our cities and towns across Alabama. We're in this together. And thank you for being on the show today. Bill, Susan, thank you for always reaching out and getting our perspective. We appreciate the opportunity to be on your show today. Thank you. Good to see you, Greg. You're watching The V, the voice of Alabama politics. We'll be right back with more news and opinion. I'm John Merrill. As your Secretary of State, my goal is to ensure that each and every eligible U.S. citizen that's a resident of Alabama is registered to vote and has a photo ID. If you're concerned about going to the polls on July the 14th, we want to encourage you to download an absentee ballot application at alabamavotes.gov or contact your local circuit clerk. 
make sure you enclose a copy of your photo ID when you submit your application. We may not see you in person, but through absentee, we'll see you at the polls. Hey man, what are you doing today? Um, playing the game. Thought I'd go out for a drive later, maybe. Text some friends while I'm doing it. Scroll through social media. Kill a family four and a half on collision. Cool, man. Drive safe, Alabama. A message from your Alabama Department of Transportation. Welcome back to The V, the voice of Alabama politics. We're joined now by Chip Brownlee. Chip, you have become the guru of numbers, graphs, and tracking the COVID-19 virus as it spread through our state. I, I gotta tell you, I get so many compliments. I'm like, he's my boy, that's my boy. <laughs> Chip, talking we everything did. knows. We did, but, but you have done such an amazing job. And, and what we, uh, just help our viewers understand why tracking these numbers are so important and how it helps save lives and inform the government on decisions it's making. Yeah, hey Bill and Susan, I'm glad to see y'all. I just hate I can't see you in person. It's been been too long because of this. Um, yeah. The data is important for a lot of reasons. First of all, I mean, Governor Ivey and State Health Officer Dr. Harris have said that they're basing all of their decisions based off of this data. Um, it's also important that people know what the data says, I think, to make uh, their personal decisions about how to go about you know their daily lives especially at this point on on friday governor ivy loosened even more restrictions um a couple of weeks ago she lifted the stay at home order um so now people do have a lot more you know personal freedom to leave the house and go out and do things and with that comes the risk of exposure to the virus i think the data is clear on one thing which is that the virus is not gone. It's still here. It's still a threat. Governor Ivey said that. State Health Officer Dr. Scott Harris has said that. Um, every epidemiologist and infectious disease expert at UAB, some of the smartest people in the world, one of them, Michael Sag, Jody Dion Odom, um, Dr. Jeannie Marazzo, all of these experts who are renowned across the world in, in Birmingham, um, are saying that the virus is not gone, community transmission is still happening, it's still here, and the data shows that as well. And that means that people should take that data and look at that data and know that there is a risk of going back outside, of going to Walmart, of um, going to a park even. Um, there is some level of risk to all of those activities and people should definitely take that into account uh, going forward. And you've spoken to the, all those people on numerous occasions, interviewed them, and, and drilled down on all this with those experts. There are people out here who just do not believe the virus exists, really, or they think the numbers are hyped for political reasons or so the media can get people all scared and panicky and all that. But... The numbers aren't fake. If anything, they're lower than what they really are. But but how do you address that? I mean, how do you say, look, these are real people that are sick and dying and and have been infected. I mean, how do we how do we teach people this? 
So when I think about the data that we get about COVID-19, there are, are different pots that I like to put the data in. One of them is uh, the number of confirmed cases. That one, when you look at that data, uh, we reached some kind of peak in early April. Um, I often use quotes around peak because it's more like waves instead of a peak. Um, confirmed cases are a good thing to look at, of course. I mean, that's the top line number that everybody looks at. But one thing we know about this virus is that a huge percentage of the people who get this virus are asymptomatic, um, which means they're show they never show symptoms, or they're pre-symptomatic, meaning that they will at some point show symptoms but are not yet, but are still able to uh, give the virus infect other people. Um, and what that, and you've written about this, I've written about it, I've talked to epidemiologists about it. Uh, we've looked at cases in New York where something like 80 something percent of uh, one study was asymptomatic but still able to infect other people. Um, you know, there's the US uh, aircraft carrier Theodore Roosevelt where it's like 60 something percent of the cases were asymptomatic. It might have been higher, I can't remember. But what that means is that there is a huge, that, that we're not even capturing all the numbers. So it's not even that the data that we have is overhyped or it's higher than reality. The reality is that the data that we have is much lower than the reality of the situation on the ground. Um, so that's one thing I want to point out to people. The other thing is that there, are, there is data that we can look at that shows you know, the effect of the virus in more absolute terms. That is, that's more sure uh, than even the confirmed cases. So something that we can look at is hospitalizations. Those are still trending up. They're higher than they were in early April. That, you know, you can, there's some wiggle with the confirmed cases because it, it all depends on how many people we're testing. Um, but there's not a lot of wiggle with the hospitalization numbers. I mean, they're going to, they go up whether or not we're, testing people or not, because most of those people are at this point able to get tests. There are delays um, in being able to get those tests, but they're able to get those tests. So we're probably not missing a lot of people in hospitals who have the virus. And as of Friday, there were more than 600 people in the hospital currently with a confirmed case of the virus and more than 300 others who are awaiting a test. So the numbers are going up too. Well, yeah, and, and on Thursday, didn't there, there were 355 confirmed cases on Thursday, which was the highest uh, number of, in one day since they began testing. Yeah, that that's exactly. Well, right. And the thing is, is that when these orders are lifted, people get the false assumption that it's safer. It's not safer. The virus hasn't gone anywhere. No. Now. <clears throat> Governor Kay Ivey intimated that people were acting more responsibly. I, I have anecdotal information that says they aren't. But we are seeing the numbers trending up right now, not trending down. And we haven't hit a wave that reflects the loosening of restrictions. Am I correct on that? Yeah. I mean, you're exactly right about that. So a couple of things on that point. It takes about two weeks for whatever policy change to show up in the data because you have an incubation period with the virus that's usually around five days but can sometimes be longer. And then there is the time you have to wait to get test results, which at some, you know, right now they, they're saying the turnaround time is 
24 to 48 hours. Uh, I've heard from some people who've said they've waited on for six days to get a test. Um, I know somebody in Montgomery whose dad is in a hospital and has waited six days to get test results there, even at a hospital. Um, so there are these delays in getting that data. So they've said it takes about two weeks to see a change in the data from a policy change. So it's been about a week um, since, you know, April 30th was when the stay-at-home order was lifted. So we'll have to see, wait and see um, what kind of effect that'll have. And then now loosening these restrictions, we'll have to wait two more weeks. Okay. Well, thank you. We're, unfortunately, we're out of time. I do appreciate all the hard work you're doing for the folks of Alabama and at APR. We're also proud of you. And we're very proud of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. You've been watching The V, the voice of Alabama politics. Stay safe, be strong, and have hope. You watch us because we watch them. Thank you.